It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates and then E-L-M-N-T-F-M and you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, right across the country. And it is a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the show today, Caroline Hodes. She is a PhD assistant professor in women and gender studies at the University of Lethbridge. And that is in Treaty 7 territory, Métis Nation and Blackfoot Confederacy area. And uh, Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, we are here to talk about if people have the right to protest uh, COVID-19 rules, especially in light of some of the recent developments, uh, people have been sort of, uh, I guess, challenging that to some degree. We saw that over the last couple of months around the long weekend, uh, Mother's Day, those kind of things where uh, people were kind of pushing the rules uh, a little bit uh, with some concern. Um and, of course, just recently, uh, I guess in your neck of the woods, there was a bill passed, Bill 1. Yes, uh, Bill 1 is a is kind of widely considered to be the anti-protest, um, mm. anti-blockade bill, uh, because it was originally drafted as a means of um, curtailing the freedom of assembly of people climate activists and Indigenous land defenders who were in support of the Wet'suwet'en land defense in um, in BC. And so a lot of people have opposed this bill. There are two petitions out right now. It just re- received royal assent. And the Alberta Regional Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Marlene Poitras, actually re- released a statement before it was uh, tabled saying that if this bill passes, it's actually going to erode individual rights and it's going to unfairly target Indigenous peoples. She said that it had no place in, in a democratic society and urged Premier Kenny to to repeal it. The unions have also been opposed to this, um, saying that picketing is generally limited to public spaces next to private property, a sidewalk, a boulevard, a ditch, or something like that. And Bill 1 could technically be used to designate trails, roads, alleys, squares, sidewalks, the legislature to be essential infrastructure, and people could be subject to fines and criminal sanctions for that. So it does put a chill on uh, on collective action in the province. But they would have known this, and you're right, the, the bill is pretty widespread when you look through it and see just about anything they can they can do, uh, they want to do, uh, now that it's been, it's been, been passed. Um, and yet, as you say, it, it puts a chill on people. So, I mean, but, but why do you think that they, they went ahead and did this? In fact, I think that the protests that were taking place were not in mostly in Alberta at the time when these things were happening. Yeah, a lot of the, I mean, they started in, in British Columbia and the labor actions were happening mostly in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, but there were solidarity movements that were blocking railways. Um, mm. So this was part of, of why they decided to to implement this bill in the province. Um, and the Kenny government also blames the tech resources yeah. pull out on climate activism and and that's uh, problematic. Um, so actually um, the 
the Pecani First Nation chief, Stan Greer, has actually said that Kenny's justification for the bill is really shaky because mm. Tech's announcement was actually about shifting global markets and the right. need for environmental regulatory frameworks that reconcile resource development and climate change. Mm. And that's actually lacking in Alberta. So that's a real reason Tech Resources pulled out. Yeah. So Alberta has a kind of vested interest in, in preventing this kind of collective action, unfortunately, um, which is anti-democratic. It, it actually Actually breaches a number of charter rights um, so yeah uh, okay so let's let's uh, talk about the the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms a little bit um, as you you know you point out in, in this article that that we're somewhat referencing here uh, for our conversation uh, people are suffering from isolation fatigue um, and as you pointed out earlier at the beginning of the the, the uh, interview that uh, they're flouting municipal and social distancing laws to some degree uh, there is that concern uh, about about the COVID-19 situation, how does this potentially spill over into things like COVID-19? Um, the thing about that is I think that people have to do a kind of a risk assessment in terms of, I, I think it's important to maintain whatever social distancing rules are in place. I think it's important to wear masks if you are being part of a collective action and to, if you have the luxury to be able to self-isolate after being a participant in a collective action, because really what you want to do is you want to protect your elders, you want to protect people who are immunocompromised, but you also want to be able to stay stand up for the things that are important, for instance, all of the protests that have swept um, the continent following the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Those are really important things. People standing up and saying, no, we're not putting up with police violence anymore. We're not going to put up with um, all of these kinds of regulations and, and all of this violence that is preventing us from actually living our lives. So, so you, you kind of have to weigh the costs and benefits. Okay, I'm going to risk my life not only by opposing structural and systemic racism, but I'm also going to be risking my life doing it in the context of pandemic. So I think that it spills over into the COVID restrictions in the sense that people are kind of weighing, okay, so, you know, what kind of world do I want to live in? right? Like, is it worth it to stay isolated and not risk getting the illness if I'm going to maintain a status quo that is violent, that is murdering our black, indigenous, and youth of color? Is is this, is what what is more important or can we do both things at the same time mm. and realize some very important social and structural change across the continent, including in Canada? Mm-hmm. As I think back to, to Bill 1, uh, I mean, you could... I, I, does this set a, a bad precedent for other provinces? I think so. I think it sets a terrible precedent for other provinces um, because mostly the people who are going to be engaging in collective action are members of marginalized groups. Mm. And Jennifer Kosha and Lisa Silver and Jonette Watson Hamilton have, have done this incredibly detailed blog post about all of the charter rights that are being violated here. And they're very careful to point out that people's equality rights are being infringed here in the sense that marginalized members of marginalized groups and 
marginalized communities are disproportionately ones targeted by this bill because they're disproportionately the ones that have to go out and and do collective action in order to get the kind of structural change that they want. And unfortunately, um, given the current state of affairs in terms of access to justice in this country, um, in 2018, our current chief justice outlined that most lawyers can't afford their own fees. The average cost of a two-day civil trial is about $31,000. So this is prohibitive for most people who want to actually challenge this bill. So this raises a, a series of problems and a series of potentials for mass arrests and charges um, in not only in Alberta, but if other provinces see that, okay, people aren't challenging this or they can't afford to challenge this, then what's to stop them from drafting similar legislation? And yet it, it would appear that it, it goes against the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in, in many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. It's a, um, a violation of Section 2, the freedom mm. of expression, violation of Section 2C, freedom of peaceful assembly, Section 2D, freedom of association in the labor context, and actually um, one of the labor decisions, the Mountain Police Association of Ontario and Canada decision, the Supreme Court actually extended the scope to protect collective action more broadly outside of the labor context. So it's definitely in violation of 2D, it's in violation of Section 7, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, um, the ability to, to you know, uh, go out and make these decisions that are of, of fundamental personal importance to you. For instance, you know, standing up against structural racism and direct racism and direct violence at violates violate section 15, the equality rights, as I, as I was saying, of marginalized peoples and groups. And so what we can see with Bill 1 is an attempt by the government of Alberta to actually penalize all protests that are group activities mm. and individual entry into essential infrastructures, um, and that it doesn't really even pretend to facilitate and channel social protest demonstrations into locations that are acceptable and safe, right. uh, which is part of what is supposed to happen. I mean, police are supposed to be there, arguably, to protect the protesters right. in a due process and not a crime control model. So, so this is a, a deeply problematic piece of legislation in terms of the violations of the charter rights. It, it, but it, it, it sounds as if you could potentially, if you could find somewhere that you could protest, uh, you know, not that, that you don't think is somehow, uh, you know, affected by the bill, but or and or uh, even if you're you are you're not there either protesting something to do with. You know, it could be COVID-19. It could be the, just, you know, we don't want to be, uh, you know, kept in our homes anymore and you could be out there. But if you're somewhere that is affected by this bill, they could then mm -hmm. shut you down for being there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So they can say this constitutes critical infrastructure. It could apply right. to anything, literally. The yeah. grounds of the legislature where most people protest, yeah. it could impact universities, university students. It can put a severe chill on students organizing and, and protesting different things. Yeah, um, it, it certainly is. I guess m m what comes to mind is how could something like this then pass? 
Well, that's a good question because it, it was passed with um, with opposition. Mm. Um, most of the the NDP MLAs opposed this and brought up all these issues in discussion, but they seem to have passed it anyway. Um, what I'm hoping, I'm hoping that different groups like the unions get together and challenge this in court. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see if if people can agitate enough that they they actually rescind this bill. Does this does this have to come from a, a challenge within? Uh, if it if it steps on the toes of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is it not under the obligation of the government to step in and, and say or, or challenge or do something about it? Absolutely, it is their obligation. However, there is Section thirty three, the notwithstanding <laughs> clause, so they can say they can make a justification for this bill, suggesting that um, they don't need to actually amend it to respect the charter rights because um, they have justifications for doing this, and then they can invoke that five year um, sort of ability to limit charter rights. And Alberta has actually done this many times in the past. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of in keeping with the, the political climate of the province to, to pass controversial legislation and then to invoke the notwithstanding clause. But public outrage, um, in the past anyway, has, has tended to sway the government significantly. So I'm hoping that people, you know, really speak out against this bill. And they already are. They're doing it through petitions. They're doing it through blog posts. They're doing doing it in, in many, many different ways. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in those uh, coordinates, one of the two, and then E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And by the way, you can also go to our website at elementfm.ca uh, and uh, choose the stations there to listen to, and also find our, uh, you, can, you can listen online through there, and you can also go to our SoundCloud to listen to uh, one of our many uh, conversations and interviews that we've done here uh, with, uh, with Moment of Truth. My guest is Carolyn. Hodes. She's a PhD assistant professor in women and gender studies at the University of Lethbridge, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show. We're talking uh, partly about uh, do you have the right to protest co in uh, COVID-19 rules, but that's uh, sort of uh, uh, stepped aside for a moment as we discussed uh, Bill 1 that was just passed in Alberta. Uh, very, very interesting conversation uh, to have around that. Uh, but uh, Caroline, maybe we can uh, get back to the, the conversation about COVID-19 and, and uh, people's right to, to protest uh, COVID-19 rules. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, much like other forms of protest, it's collective action. It's a democratic right. And if people want to protest those rules, they, they could arguably protest those rules. But, I mean, there are different um, pieces of legislation, however, that are justifications um, and excellent justifications for those rules. So there are always limits on different charter rights, right? So your right to freedom of assembly can be limited by government if 
um, there is a, a reasonable justification for that. And so in the case of COVID-19, it is very possible that the concerns for public health and the risk to people's lives um, could supersede their right to protest. And so in that case, they would invoke Section 1 of the Charter, the government, to say that these rules are in place um, because of a massive public health problem, and therefore we have actually the ability to limit your ability to, to protest COVID-19 restrictions. And I think that would be a fair limitation on people's right to collective assembly in that instance. However, the problem comes in when um, governments use COVID-19 restrictions to limit the democratic rights of people who are protesting not the COVID-19 restrictions, but systemic racism, or if they're engaging in a land defense or something mm. of that nature. So, so this can be a little bit tricky. Um, how, do, how does one use COVID-19 restrictions to curtail democratic rights or what are reasonable limits on people's democratic rights? So it's a very difficult question actually. So on one hand, you don't want to have some sort of collective action that's going to lead to the spread of COVID-19. But on the other hand, you want people to be able to express themselves and to collectively organize around serious and, and important issues that are also threats to their lives, mm -hmm. for instance police violence and, and those kinds of things. And we've seen that play out in the last uh, number of weeks, uh, as we pointed out with uh, uh, George Floyd's uh, death and and also uh, other, uh, right around the world, we saw all those protests playing out in Canada, United States, and, and everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, most of them, uh, at least here in Canada, uh, went off uh, and were, were not challenged, I guess, in that regard. Uh, but, of course, there were the concerns with COVID-19. Uh, what I'm not sure about uh, at this point in time is, is if we heard anything back about, uh, you know, if there was an increase in any of the, any, any uh, positive uh, testing uh, after these gatherings took place. I, I, I don't know of anything that I've heard about. I don't know if you have. No, I haven't heard of, of any increases, but I think time will tell. It's, mm. it's, it's fairly recent, so mm -hmm. I don't think we'll know whether they were the result of or causes of a spike or not. Um, the rallies that I've attended, everybody was very diligent around wearing masks mm. and respecting each other's space to the extent that they could, and there was sanitizer you know, being kind of handed out. So people, people have been very good about balancing the COVID-19 restrictions with the, the right to assemble mm. and to protest. Right. And and I guess uh, getting back to that, that's where the, the word uh, harm comes into play in terms of what, what that could mean subjectively mm -hmm. by, you know, in terms of people gathering for COVID-19 reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the nature of harm and how, how would the court define harm? But, th but that's the point that you get at when you, you actually get to the courts, which, I mean, there's so many obstacles to getting to the courts cost mm. being mm. a significant one. Um, but when people are thinking about how they're exercising their rights to, to assembly and expression, absolutely, they need to consider to what degree am I, you know, what is the harm here? Or what is the harm that I'm preventing? Or, you know, what are my long term goals in terms of 
participating in this particular activity? And how is this going to impact the people in my life? So there are a number of people I know that really wanted potentially to attend these sorts of events, especially um, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, mm. because it, this is a hugely important issue to them, mm. but they're immunocompromised. And so, mm. so how do you facilitate also, and this is about sort of creative collective organizing, how do you facilitate it so that people who can't physically be there can be there in a different way um, and protect themselves and their elders and their families who are immunocompromised. You know, in some ways, those people that, that protested uh, in regard to the Black Lives Matter recently uh, everywhere, uh, in some ways already made that decision for themselves because they were there. They were part yeah. of those groups, and they they made that decision for themselves. So, how does that how does that play into the to the conversation of Hey, I made this decision. You know why? You know I I know the responsibility. I know what's how I could potentially be impacted. So why are you why are you telling and, and why are you trying to impose this on me? Mm -hmm. And so, so that speaks to more of a, a kind of self-harm type of mm. conversation. Yeah, right. And that, that, that's interesting because I think that, that, you know, fighting systemic racism is, is something worth mm -hmm. putting oneself at risk for. Mm. So, so that's where the risk assessment comes in. It's right. like, okay, what, am I willing to, to die for this? People are already dying for this. I right. mean, this is, sure. I had an interesting conversation with a colleague yeah. about morality um, mm -hmm. on a listserv recently and sort of why are people, why do people do the things they do? Why do people do the right thing was right. The, the tenor of the conversation. Right. And, and, and I was saying, well, it's not really about morality. It's about survival. And so I think people are out there because they want to ensure the survival of future generations of people. They want mm -hmm. to make sure that their kids mm -hmm. are not going to experience this kind of violence right. and and for them i mean putting your life at risk of COVID-19, that might be worth dying for because yeah. if you you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't mm -hmm. if you don't go out there your kids might die they might be killed by the police if you mm. do go out there you might die so mm -hmm. the question is to what extent does the threat of COVID um you know, is that a more significant threat than the threat of police violence? And I think most people would say that police violence is, well, in fact, a bigger threat. Yeah, and and of course the you know the the statement that was made uh, not too long ago uh, about uh, someone out west saying it's a great time to build a pipeline. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that was our energy minister. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. The opportunism that comes mm. in when, oh, look, there's a pandemic, so right. let's take advantage of this. But but here we have people who have to build the pipeline, mm -hmm. and those people are being put at risk because they have to work. Right. And so... This is, is it's, it's also an egregious violation of people's human rights, if you think about it more mm. broadly, like, okay, I don't have a choice, I have to go to my job, but my job is going to put my health at risk, and my employer is not concerned about that. And that happened at a meatpacking plant here mm. in Alberta, right. as well, where employees were getting sick, and there was a huge outbreak, and yeah. the employer would not you know, allow for restrictions or make accommodations for pay or any of these kinds of things. And so you've got to ask yourself, you know, what, I mean, clearly the, the priority for the energy minister is building that pipeline. But if, 
nobody's alive. What's the point of having the pipeline? I mean, <laughs> let's think about this in a right. larger kind of context. <laughs> and if you're building it through Indigenous territories, you're putting right. all the people that the pipeline is being built, you know, all yes. those territories that the pipeline is built, being built through at risk. So it's, you know, I, that comment was just, it was horrendous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that uh, and thinking exactly that. It's all very fascinating for for thought. Uh, now, looking forward, uh, so far we haven't had the uh, Emer emergency act, you know, uh, put into place. But if if things uh, tr go south and we we have another uh, a wave that comes through that could potentially be worse, you know, there there there. If you look back at other pandemics, there's always a second wave, and that wave uh, potentially could be worse than the first one. Mm -hmm. um, what is your, your sense of, of looking to the future? Well, I, I kind of hope that, that people, I think people have been fairly good about the, the restrictions. I think that's why we're seeing things opening up a little bit at this mm. point. Um, hopefully there'll be some sort of vaccine developed before we have to worry about yeah. that. I have my doubts about that, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that the emergency, the Emergencies Act is a really drastic, drastic uh, measure. Mm. And unless, you know, it, it becomes something akin to the, the Spanish flu or something mm. like that, um, I don't think the Emergencies Act um, is, is a legitimate response to mm. this particular disease as it's happening. We have the Quarantine Act. Mm -hmm. We have the provinces um, doing their things. We have people taking it seriously. Do we really need the Emergencies Act um, is the question. Because mm. that's effectively going to put the, the, the country in a state of martial law. Right. Which, that's an extreme, extreme measure. Sure, yeah. And, and as you say, things seem to be flattening uh, to a large degree uh, in, in many areas, which, which is good. Let's hope it continues that way. And, and let's hope that, uh, uh, you know, things settle down. But let's also hope that there is positive action taken uh, in regard to some of the things that have been, uh, been protested about uh, recently as well. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you can think of that uh, that you, you want to share or you think is important to mention before we tie, uh, wrap up? Um, just that there are petitions out about Bill 1. I mm. recommend everyone across the country to sign them because okay. it can, you know, it might filter into your province. Um, and I also want to thank um, Kim Seaver did a wonderful uh, blog post that really breaks down the bill in a very comprehensive way for people to go check that out mm. and to also check out Jennifer Koshan's uh, blog post about the charter violations of this bill so that okay. you know if your provincial governments are going or jumping on that train that, that you know what's at stake. Okay, that sounds great. We'll have to leave it there, but we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and share your thoughts, ideas, and, uh, and, and information on these very important topics. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the voice of Caroline Hodes. She's a PhD assistant professor of women and gender studies at the University of Lethbridge. We're going to be right back after this with more on right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as I say, anywhere across the country. It is a pleasure to welcome uh, our next guest to the show, and that is Jack... Rodzilski, and he is a professor at York University, my old alma mater, which is great always to have someone on the show from York University, uh, who receives funding from the Canadian Institute of Health Research as a co-investigator on projects supported under operating grant of uh, 2019 for novel coronavirus uh, rapid research funding. However, uh, Jack also has written an article in The Conversation, and we're here to talk to him a little bit about that because uh, he also is an associate professor of disaster Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Uh, having to do with that article, uh, it is entitled Trump's Threat to the Use of the Insurrection Act Against Protesters is an Abuse of Power. So, uh, Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Moses. I appreciate your focus on these uh, timely topics in these uh, times of crisis. Well, they certainly are, aren't they? And I, I guess you're dealing with, with both of these issues that are very much in the news and very much in the forefront. How would you, if you don't mind me asking, because this just popped into my head as, as I was reading this, with, with the, the protesting and with this, the, these horrible things that have happened, especially with the, the death of uh, George Floyd and, and the other uh, black people and also indigenous people that have recently happened, um, COVID-19, is there, do you think there's somewhat of a relationship with, with what's going on with what we're seeing in the world right now? Between these well, two uh, things, I, I yes, I, I would say uh, first and foremost, our thoughts have to go out to those uh, persons who are in uh, racialized uh, minority groups who are uh, suffering right now, facing combined issues of COVID nineteen impacts, and then what we've seen um, recently has been highlighted, but has been ongoing for a while: issues mm. of civil rights uh, violation. Uh, meaning that there's um, real suffering that's taking place in communities right now with one disaster of the public health crisis layered over the other disaster of inequality and urban unrest, uh, um, making it, unfortunately, a very complicated uh, time to be living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it certainly does. I appreciate you saying that. Now, with this, the article in, in, in the conversation about uh, Trump's threat to use the Insurrection Act against protesters, uh, saying it's an abuse of power. Now, we've, we've heard this discussion a little bit uh, already, but um, the idea uh, of the Insurrection Act, do you have some background that you can share with us about what, what it is and, and how Trump's, Trump might be able to uh, have the power to use this? Uh, yes, um I want to say President Trump does have the power to use it, but I think before getting into that, we just need to uh, consider a little context here, uh, because um, as a professor of disaster and emergency management, one of the things I think about are worst cases, meaning the worst types of disasters you can imagine. And um, if we look at it from the natural perspective, maybe a massive Category 5 hurricane or a super volcano could wreak much uh, havoc uh, from a natural uh, disaster. 
from a technological perspective, we have things like uh, a nuclear power plant meltdown or complete collapse of our cyber infrastructure uh, could create many societal problems. Hmm. But then we have a third category of disasters and crises, which are socially mediated, meaning disasters based on human behaviors or misbehaviors. Uh, for example, weapons of mass destruction type terrorism, um, insurrection, uh, issues of that nature. And um, when I talk to students about the types of disasters that might be faced in the future, it's very um, likely that people who deal with crises and emergencies in society will be dealing with something like a flood where mm -hmm. every spring we uh, have ice jams in Ontario. Mm -hmm. The ice jams create flooding and we respond to floods. But then there are also other disasters which do not occur as frequently, which are very rare, which may never occur like insurrection or nuclear war or some type of crisis which actually threatens the existence of an entire nation. And what we're talking about when we talk about the Insurrection Act is the type of crisis which may threaten the existence of a nation. So governments reserve in their toolbox uh, specific extraordinary measures that can be used under the worst, worst, worst case scenarios. So first of all, that's kind of a context of how we come into this Insurrection Act discussion. Okay. And it was, uh, I believe it was first implemented uh, right around the time or just, just after the Civil War, is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, the Insurrection Act that we're referring to specifically in the context of the United States comes in in 1807, where the Insurrection Act was a U.S. federal law that empowered the President of the United States to deploy federal troops to suppress civil disorder, insurrection, and rebellion. And in other words, in a democratic society, a government cannot just take action. There has to be a legislative basis for actions to uh, take place. And in this case, uh, the Insurrection Act goes back about 213 years, and it's still on the books as a tool that the president can use in the event of a worst, worst case crisis. And under the um, spirit of the law, this type of Insurrection Act is reserved for the worst cases under a very narrow interpretation of circumstances that we would never hope to occur in our lifetime, the types of circumstances that would threaten the existence of the uh, nation to the extent that military forces in the United States, federal military forces are called on to, uh, to engage in domestic law enforcement duties. Hmm. Yeah, it's part of a larger act, I, I understand. Yes, and there's one more act that I would like to bring up in context sure. to, um, uh, uh, for this uh, dis discussion, mm -hmm. because uh, we're talking about the Insurrection Act of 1807, but we, we have to consider it within the context of something that's also called the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878. And the Posse Comitatus uh, Act is known as the act that places severe restrictions 
on the, particip on the participation of the military in domestic law enforcement uh, circumstances. Uh, but of course, when we look at laws, there are always exceptions to laws, and the Insurrection Act is one of the exceptions to the Posse Comitatus Act that does give the president power to use domestic, to use um, federal military forces in the states for domestic law enforcement use. It now, this is going above and beyond uh, the, the state's power, the governor's. It's going over their heads, basically. Um, uh, yes. What, what is there? Do you know what the, what, how his uttering, the words saying, I, I will implement this, uh, how that has uh, sat with the, the governors of the states who are, uh, would be facing this? Uh, 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 yes, it, it, does, it does not sit well with the governors for a variety of reasons. And uh, if I may, I'd like to just read a quote from the president's June 1st uh, press conference sure. where he alluded to the Insurrection Act. And uh, that quote reads, if a city or state refuses to take actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of residents, then I will deploy the US military and quickly solve the problem for them. Now. By making that statement, the president did not mention the Insurrection Act by name, mm. but if the president were to take that action, the Insurrection Act would be the tool that the president can use to act as an exception to the Posse Comitatus Act to allow federal troops to be deployed to cities to enforce uh, domestic, um, to enforce domestic laws, and again, that rarely happens. The <laughs> last time we saw this happen was in 1992, and uh, you, you remember back to uh, 1992 in South uh, Central Los Angeles, where mm -hmm. we also had a, um, a racial uh, controversy mm -hmm. uh, with. Um, when the officers who beat Rodney King were acquitted in the uh, trial in Simi Valley, uh, we saw a lot of unrest and rebellion um, erupt in South, South, South uh, Central Los Angeles mm -hmm. in uh, April 1992. And one of the provisions of the Insurrection Act allows for a governor to request specific use of federal military troops. Right to assist in law enforcement to restore order or to quell unrest. So in 1992, with the Los Angeles riots, what we saw was the governor of the state of California, Pete Wilson, making a request to then President George H.W. Bush to deploy the military to Los Angeles to assist in law enforcement activities. But a, a, a main uh, difference there, Mr. Moses, I like to highlight. In that case, the governor requested of the president troops, and under a provision of the Insurrection Act, the president does have that power to allow for troops to enter a state under the governor's request. Mm -hmm. But under the um, current situation and the aftermath of the George uh, Floyd killing and civil unrest in many cities in the United States, Governors have not requested 
that the federal government send in troops to assist and put down the civil unrest. Exactly. And I'm glad you pointed that out. I was going to say uh, right there that the governor had requested that the troops be brought in in that instance in, in 1992, as you just mentioned. Uh, so going back to that question again, uh, currently, uh, it sounds like that heavy hand of uh, President uh, Trump uh, superseding uh, governors, uh, even even not even requesting that uh, at any point in time. And I'm just wondering about the tensions that you you might uh, be aware of, uh, if if any, um, that would that would that him saying that uh, that he would implement that, uh, because I, I could well imagine a governor, you know, wants to say I'm in charge of my own state and I have things under control right now. I don't need that help. Why are you Why are you going ahead and saying this, or why are you implementing this when no one's asked for it? Yes, and I, I think. Looking at that Monday evening, June 1st of the press conference is, is uh, indicative of the circumstance with this type of uh, tension. Uh, because on June 1st, what we saw first was the clearing of the park from, of the peaceful protesters by a use of force hmm. to establish a perimeter around the White House. And in that clearing of the park, federal troops were used. Hmm portions of uh, federal authorities. But what's kind of unique about this, Washington, D.C. is not a state. Washington, D.C. is known as a federal district or the District of Columbia, mm. the abbreviation D.C., District mm -hmm. of Columbia, where the president does have authority to use federal forces on a federal reservation. And Washington, D.C. is under a very unique jurisdictional arrangement. That's why we saw troops to be able to be um, used that way outside of the uh, White House. Then the president gives his uh, quote-unquote law and order address. The uh, unfortunate uh, incident of the photo opportunity then mm -hmm. that was widely criticized as uh, inappropriate mm -hmm. given the circumstances. Uh, but then the important part of all of this is the president said he was moving, he implied he was moving in a direction of using the uh, Insurrection Act. But uh, when the president was moving in that um, direction, an interesting point was even the president really did not follow the procedure mm. to implement the Insurrection Act. Uh, because if we, we get into the weeds, but this is important, under Section 334 of the Insurrection Act, the president has to make a formal proclamation before de deploying troops. Mm. And that proclamation has to go something to the effect, as president, I immediately order the insurgents to disperse and retreat peace peaceably to their homes in a limited time frame. Now, if the president made their formal proclamation and said, insurgents disperse in three hours, or I will begin to send in federal troops under my authority. That would be a signal for us that the president is formally thinking about implementing the Insurrection uh, Act. But again, we didn't see the president do that. And then, interestingly, two days later, on June 3rd, we had Secretary of Defense, uh, Mike Esper, disagreeing with the President of the United States 
uh, stating that active duty troops should only be used in situations of last resort of very dire consequences. Mm. And despite the problems we see right now in the United States, even the Secretary of Defense weighed in to say this circumstance uh, despite being very problematic, does not meet the high bar of standards where the Secretary of Defense believed troops can be sent into American streets. Hmm. And that is the voice of Jack Rodzilski, and he is an associate professor of disaster and emergency management at York University. We're going to be right back after this with more on right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country 24 hours a day. My guest is Jack Rozziltke and he's a professor at York University and he's an associate professor of disaster and emergency management at York University uh, as well as um, uh, someone working on a Canadian Institute of Health Research as a co-investigator on the project supported under operating grants uh, Canadian 2019 November coronavirus, rapid research funding. And uh, we're talking to him uh, about starting, that started this conversation about an article in the conversation that uh, he co-authored and uh, Trump's threat to use the Insurrection Act against protesters uh, as an abuse of power. Um, Now, Jack, the thing that you were just referring to, uh, the um, uh, Section 334, and the the president uh, making that statement uh, that he has not done that we are publicly aware of um, and to implement the insurrection act um, you know we were talking about the the the, the tension that this kind of might uh, upset between the 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 federal government and the governors of the states where this might be might be affected by, but I guess even other governors that wouldn't be affected no, n- would would be on guard because they could also uh, be subject to the same kind of uh, uh, of of um, action at a whim if 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 he were to do so, uh, but is there a further uh, implication here of of what? If he were to go ahead and do this, what this would say to not only the, the, the remaining governors or all the governors in the states, but worldwide, how would, what, would there be a, 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 some kind of a, uh, what would that do to, to the image uh, globally, do you think? Uh, it would be problematic for the image to suggest that the current controversies in the United States warrant that level of military uh, intervention because I I think it's safe to say in the United States and for that matter uh, Canada, we definitely have to address issues as related to civil rights of uh, visual minorities. There are definitely issues concerning how police react in certain situations, but we have uh, institutions and civil society to resolve those issues. There are enshrined rights to protest, to have freedom of expression, to redress grievances. 
through the judicial system, through the legislative uh, system. And our democracies are not designed for a strong executive to exert military force in that way. It's more similar to an approach that we would probably consider to be that of maybe a king. And uh, just um, the reason we see the resentment in the United States at a deep-seated level to using military troops domestically goes back to the very founding of the of America and mm. the uh, revolution, mm. where some of the ideas driving the revolution were the disgust at British troops being quartered in uh, American homes in Boston during the times of the uh, revolution, thus leading to the revolution and so on. So uh, again, in American society, there's very deep-seated resentment to military forces acting on American soil. Uh, states hold firm on a separation of um, on the federalism principle where states have rights and um, the only rights and the only rights that the federal government has are the rights that are not allocated to the states. So that's why I, I think we see this very rarely used. Uh, mm -hmm. Some would suggest it's perhaps a dangerous precedent mm -hmm. sliding closer to the scale of dictatorship than democracy. Yeah, and of course that—that's uh, one of the things that came to mind. Of course, the stepping on rights and not following uh, protocols, et cetera, et cetera. Um, especially with jumping immediately to this, uh, not looking. Not, we don't—we didn't hear much from him in terms of trying to resolve this or or uh, being empathetic. Uh, you know, those kind of things. It was—is okay. Let's end this now. Bring in the forces. Um, that kind of. Uh, it, 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 and that's, I guess, not surprising, I guess, from from the way we, we have seen Trump uh, behave in the past. We, we, is that fair to say? And I, I think it's fair to say that um, words that the president of the United States use matter. When the president says something, whatever the president should say, we pay attention. Right. And words have meaning, and it's dangerous... I think when a person in that position of power speaks and suggests words leading to actions, when perhaps we could suggest a person is not really clearly informed on the implications of what he's saying or history or the law or the constitution or methods in which a democratic society works. There's a reason why in the United States people take civics classes in high school mm. and in university to understand the complicated workings of the democracy. Mm. Looking forward, how would you say that this places the the United States in terms of? I mean, people are walk, are people walking on on you know eggshells at this point in time uh, as governors, uh, wondering what's going to happen, or do you think it's 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 uh, kind of calmed down a little bit? What what do you think? Well, if we look historically at um, racial-related civil disturbances in the United States, we see an ebb and a flow. Uh, for example, if we go back to 1992 again, we had the instance with the beating of Rodney King, which was videotaped, which uh, created a great deal of consternation. 
But then we saw most of the civil uprisings happen after the trial of the police officers mm. and their acquittal. Mm. So now uh, we still have processes to work through the legal system concerning the disposition of the police officers in questions and any sanctions they may be given. And depending on the sanctions they are given or not given, based on the violent incidents, may again create uh, uh, dismay and unrest amongst the population who perhaps feels uh, they've been unjustly treated and uh, justice really was not effective, leading to um, more uh, protests in the streets and perhaps the actions and counter-reactions of the protest. And the, the sad part uh, of this is many of the places where the unrest is already taking place were already suffering under COVID-19. Mm. So it's blow after blow after blow. And um, we just have to consider how are, how are people going to rebuild their lives mm. who are at ground zero of all of these things happening at once. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, I, I think there's, um, th there's a concept here that's useful that, that we could wrap that, that kind of we can uh, consider, which is called slow violence. And that's a concept which comes from a, an author, uh, Rob Nixon. He works in environmentalism, but it's a violence that occurs gradually and uh, out of sight, where you have a, a slow moving set of structural harms that keeps occurring and accumulating. But then occasionally we reach some type of inflection point where this violence is brought to light. And what we saw on May 25th in Minneapolis uh, mm. with the killing of George Floyd was an inflection point mm. that really brought to light a slow-moving crisis that has existed for a while. Mm. Mm -hmm. But what was invisible to many people became visible right away, thus the outrage even where to the point we're seeing reactions to the events in the United, in the United States taking place with uh, peaceful marches in places like Toronto, uh, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, etc., reacting to both situations in Canada and the uh, global movement to respond to, I guess, the slow-moving um, structural harms that have been taking place. Well, I guess that's the one thing that is different since 1992 is the instant uh, sharing of viral video uh, around the planet and that outrage that everyone was uh, was reacting to upon seeing this that that has taken it to the world stage. Is there is there is that does that play into this at all in terms of we've seen a lot of people wanting to uh, make change at at uh, their their municipal levels you know you see all kinds of people talking whether it's police forces whether it's uh, uh, governors whether it's uh, 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 premiers uh, all talking and, and the prime minister talking about making change and implementing things uh, for the better um, does this play or will it have an effect at all in terms of uh, the, the forces that are, that are at play in the states? Uh, yes, I think it, the rapid call for uh, change is needed, but it, 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 does, it does complicate things because when we're considering how we manage these events and manage these uh, crises, 
the crises are so fast moving mm. that they're sometimes hard to comprehend. Mm. And sometimes we have local officials, we have boots on the ground, which are uh, who put boots on the ground uh, to try to keep cities from burning down, who respond mm. in ways which may be inappropriate because they feel overwhelmed by the rapidity of events, mm. which uh, it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated situation, uh, both for the citizenry who feel a real real or perceived set of grievances, which they say we have had enough. Now is the time we need to address these. And then on the other hand, you have uh, men and women who are first responders who are essentially trying to keep the cities from self-destructing and they're put at odds with one another. And it's uh, unfortunate. Mm. Uh, Jack, we're, we're almost out of time. I just want to uh, ask if there's anything we haven't discussed or, or a point you want to reiterate, perhaps, that uh, just before we go, uh, you know, that you want to mention. Uh, I, I think one just point I'd like to reiterate in conclusion is that uh, words matter. Hmm. And that we could hope from our from leaders, both in the United States and for that matter in Canada, if we move to consider um, use of extreme, extraordinary measures of government, make sure the crisis is the type of crisis that cannot be resolved through any other means of civil society. And I think we could suggest from a disaster and emergency management perspective that there are probably very, very few crises that cannot be resolved through the due process of civil discourse where we'd have to resort to using such uh, extraordinary measures. It's, again, very rare, and we should not have an expectation in a democratic society that we would see these measures come out to be used uh, that often, if at all. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for those comments and all your comments uh, in the show today. Uh, Jack, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, thank you for your interest. And if there's further developments in this, we certainly would like to contact you again and perhaps have you back on the show. Uh, yes, I would be uh, pleased to uh, do that as we all continue to monitor the situation. Uh, we hope for the sake of all that we can move uh, closer toward uh, justice and perhaps use this opportunity to maybe uh, finally address some of the uh, problems we face in society. Indeed, indeed. And that is the voice of Jack Rodzilski, and he is an associate professor of disaster and emergency management at York University. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening, uh, our listeners, as you tune in every day. And we're going to have more uh, tomorrow, so please stay tuned for that. Until next time, we'll see you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.